We are at or almost at the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark, which, if you remember, means we're almost to where we started. Because we started this whole journey on Transfiguration Sunday uh, with the Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And that is the main story that's going to come after what we do hear about tonight. You heard read just a moment ago the ending of our reading, which is, again, this midpoint. On the one side, there is Christ on the mountain, transfigured, beaming with light, the Son of God among men. On the other side, he's telling his disciples plainly that his goal is to get murdered. That his plan is to lose that he is going to suffer many things at the hands of the very people who he's supposed to be coming to save. And indeed, some of them will be saved. Because Pharisees will repent after the resurrection. People from all walks of life will come to believe in the resurrected Christ. But this moment of uh, confusion that Peter has over what it means to be the Christ, all the rest of the stories have been leading us here. Remember that throughout the Gospel of Mark, nobody seems to understand who Jesus is except for his enemies. The demons know he's the Son of God. They say it regularly, and he tells them to be quiet. And then the Pharisees, the Herodians, other political groups, they know at least that he is a threat to their order. And so perhaps you remember since chapter 3, they've been plotting to destroy him. They're not just testing. They're not playing around. They want him dead already. And yet, as you've seen over the past weeks, his fame continues to grow. No matter where he goes, crowds are swelling around him, just trying to get close enough to touch him. Because if you do, you walk away a better person. It just happens that way. He's that good. Yeah. Now, the text we're going to look at tonight that ends with what we heard read a moment ago starts in verse 14 of chapter 8. This is on page 843 of your pew Bible, if you would like to turn there. Uh, Remember that where we left off on Sunday, Jesus has done a miraculous feeding for a second time. He has fed, this time, 4,000 men, plus women and children, with just five loaves of bread and a few fish, and they've picked up more food afterwards than when they had to begin with. And yet right after this, these Pharisees, who are a major antagonist to Jesus in Mark, but they haven't been around for a while. If you, if you look at the story, they've been kind of in hiding. But they, they pop up out of nowhere and they demand a sign. They say, prove it. Prove it to us. Uh, we're going to come back to that thought a, a little bit here in a moment. But that happened right before our text. Jesus says to them, you get no sign. You won't have any sign whatsoever. In other words, I can't prove it. Well, not exactly. Uh, to you, I can't prove it because you won't believe it. So no matter what I do, you won't believe it. Think of how he talks about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Even if someone should rise from the dead, they still won't believe it. And so for you Pharisees, no sign will be given. Now, of course, uh, perhaps you remember from Sunday 2, Matthew says there is a sign. The same text, no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And that is the death of Jesus, three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. All of that, again, just what happened before, where we're going to pick up at verse 14, where we find our, our heroic disciple band 
confused. They're confused. Um, verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread. They're in a boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The story's going to go on from there. It's, it's going to leave it. Let's go back and kind of try to pick it apart a little bit. I, I don't necessarily want to go verse by verse because I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the, the text is Jesus just being flabbergasted, out of his mind in a sense of frustrated, like he's trying to tell them something that he thinks is so obvious. And they're like, he's talking about bread, right? Yeah, we got we don't have bread, do we? No, we don't. Oh man, we're in trouble. Like, they, they just are so dense, they cannot hear what he's saying. And this is, again, a demonstration of how Mark is portraying everybody in the gospel. Nobody understands what's going on with Jesus. Why? Why? I think a big piece of it, we're going to see with Peter a little bit, is no one understands that the Christ is going to die. It's there in the Old Testament. It's there in the prophecies, but it's not right out on the surface as the loudest thing. What everyone's expecting is judgment day, which they should expect. It is indeed coming. And in Christ, it came at the cross as a saving event. But their expectation that there's coming a day where God is going to take everything that was done, which was thought to be gotten away with, and, and it's not going to be gotten away with on that day. That day is coming, and the Christ is the one who's going to be the judge on that day. And they're all thinking, that's what Jesus is here to do. They don't understand that he's here to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this whole section is kind of revealing that blindness. And if you can kind of think ahead with me here, this is also part of one of those story sandwiches, right? How Mark's going to start one story or idea, stop it, tell a different story, and then come back and complete the story again. So here on this side of uh, the healing of the blind man, which we're going to get to, uh, we have uh, the, uh, the disciples not understanding about the leaven of the Pharisees. And on the other side of the story of the blind man, we have the disciples saying, you're the Christ, but you don't know what you're talking about, so you're wrong. Uh, and so on both sides of this healing of the blind man, you have stories of confused disciples. Disciples who, who can't quite see. And as we get to the story of the blind man, you're going to find out that the blind man, even when he gets healed, can't quite see. Uh, what's Mark trying to tell us here, right? He's trying to show us ourselves. 
trying to show us our tendency as humans, that even believing, we hold our reservations. Even in faith, which the Holy Spirit imparts to us, we find that our flesh clings to us, that we're weak on the inside. And so we set out and say, yeah, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be virtuous. I'm going to do the right thing. And then you get to the end of the day and you're like, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I failed at that. And I did do that, which I didn't want to do. Oh my goodness, my foot's in it now. And if you're going to judge yourself based upon how the day went, then you're going to end up condemned, which is why Christianity is not about succeeding in becoming good for Jesus' sake. It's about how Jesus is the completion of all of it, how you're under grace from start to finish. How his death and his suffering is his taking of all of your failures and incompletions upon his own back and making them his own. So those scars, those lashes, those are God's judgment day punishment on him for you. Now you believe that, you get to walk in that, it's going to be a little bit like being half blind. Because, again, you're going to know the grace, you're going to believe the grace, it's going to make you want to be good, you're going to go try to be good, you're going to bang your head against the law again, bang your head against your sin. You're going to come back to the grace. And if that cycle of just every day is a new day, mercy is new every morning, that's what I live in. If that isn't your heartbeat, and your heartbeat is instead, I'm better today than I was yesterday, and I never took a step back, then you're going to break yourself trying to be a Christian. You're going to be pursuing a righteousness that's your own rather than receiving a righteousness that is from Christ. And again, I think that's very much what this entire section is about, that this blind man is us again. And, and, and we, are, we are blind, but we are healed. And yet as we are healed, we need Christ to keep healing us. And without him continuing to add his mercy upon mercy, uh, we only fall back away again. Anyway, so let's, let's get there then. Um, but one little bit about, I really want to give attention to uh, verse 15, where Jesus says, you know, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, of Herod. Um, that caused me to go back and do a little digging back in Mark to see, okay, Herod, okay, well, he did just kill John the Baptist a few moments ago. There's a big story that we just threw with him. So there's some, there's some leaven there. So there's something about Herod we're supposed to understand and, and get. And then these Pharisees, well, here they are. They just demanded a sign. So, so there's something there. They're both in the immediate context. But also both parties haven't really been around for a while. You got to go back to, again, chapter 3 to find the Herodians mentioned. But that's just it. That's where right at the start of the ministry, the Pharisees, And the Herodians, the two he mentions with leaven, they decide it's time to destroy Jesus. So he's very much saying, watch out for those who are my enemies. Very much when he says this to his disciples. That the leaven of the Pharisees and and, and not Sadducees, excuse me. The leaven of the Pharisees and Herodians uh, is that of the enemy of Christ. So I think it's a pretty important thing to figure out what that leaven really is. What is the false teaching he's warning about? Since, obviously, it's not have enough bread when you're on a boat, um, although it's not bad advice, I suppose. Um, but so, well, okay, let's just look at those two most recent stories in our heads for a moment. Uh, what is the leaven of Herod? What is Herod? Herod is this guy who kind of wants to be well-liked. He, he does works for the public. He likes to be cheered by large groups of men. Um, he also wants what he wants. And so when his brother's wife and him are kind of interested in each other, well, he goes and he gets her. And when the prophet begins saying this is wrong, he puts that guy in prison. But like, 
he kind of likes the prophet and he's, he's not so sure he's not wrong. He kind of understands a little bit where he's coming from. So you see in Herod a bit of a, a waffler. He's a man who's trying to stand on two sides of the same thing. And, and then when he has this big party, of course, you know, he, he promises the, the girl anything and she comes back with this gory request and he doesn't have the guts to say no. So he's ultimately a coward. He's a waffling coward. Now, interestingly, there's a word for that in the book of Proverbs, the kind of person Herod is. The word is etzel. It often gets translated as slacker or sluggard. Um, but the, the leaven of Herod, I would suggest to you, study the sluggard in Proverbs, and you'll find the leaven of Herod. And then, conversely, the leaven of the Pharisees, what did they just do a moment ago? Again, they demanded a proof from Jesus. Jesus comes and they say, we don't believe who you are because we think we're smart. We know better than you. Uh, in short, there's also a word in Proverbs for this kind of person. This kind of person is called the scoffer. You'll find most translations will translate the word lates or letzim as, as scoffer. Uh, and so the leaven of the Pharisees is that of the scoffer of Proverbs. I commend that thought process to you. You maybe chase those words a little bit sometime, or, or the next time you see them in the Proverbs, you're like, oh, the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. Uh, so, again, what are they? Uh, to demand proofs of God, to scoff at God, say, you need to prove to me that you're my Savior, rather than just hearing the word and believing it. Right? That's the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, and then the leaven of the Herodians is kind of like, well, maybe he's God. I'm not sure. Oh, we'll see. Oh, I got to suffer. Nope. Right. So, so think about the, uh, the seed cast on the rocks a little bit for Herod and perhaps the seed in the weeds for the Pharisees as well. So the disciples don't get any of that. And Jesus just ends up kind of marveling on the boat. Like, oh my goodness, these guys, <laughs> you know, I love them, but come on. You know, uh, he's got his hands against his heads with it. And, and they come verse 22 to Bethsaida. Uh, and some people brought to him this blind man, and, and beg Jesus to touch him. Now, I mentioned the, the sandwich of, of ideas. And do you remember from Sunday, I tried to show you also, this blind man is parallel to that mute and deaf man that we had on Sunday. Uh, and we have kind of this uh, growing uh, focus inward on a central meaty moment, uh, which was that sign, demanding of the sign. And now we're on the back end. Uh, we're moving out toward the confession of the Christ, and we have this other proof of it. Here, it here's the sign, right? Uh, in the center of the sandwich of stories is there's no sign, and yet all the way through all the stories, he's feeding 4,000 people with bread. He's healing a guy who's deaf. He's healing a guy who's blind. What more do you want from the guy, you know, uh, to prove himself? And, and yet, um, well, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of count in the eyes of the Pharisees. They bring him this blind man. They beg him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. It's so marked to say that. Like, why? Why does he tell us that? He didn't have to tell us that. It doesn't have anything to do with anything else that we can see. But we're outside the village now. Okay. And then, very marked and very odd, when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. 
Uh, I think I, I said this morning to the midday service, and I, I have to stand by it. This has got to be the weirdest story in the Bible. And there are some weird ones. I mean, there are some weird stories, you know, floating axe heads in rivers and things. But, but this is just strange because here's, here's the son of God who like, if I can just touch his cloak from behind, I get full healing. But now he's going out of his way to make a salve out of his spit. And it, it doesn't quite work. How is this possible? What, what is our, where's our Christology go? Jesus is the perfect man who never fails. And yet he, he heals this guy and, and, and yet, yet doesn't. And I tell you, this is one of those moments where you really do just need like you know, the mystery of God, the majesty of God. I don't know. Hallelujah. And sorry, it's Lent, but you got to just let it go a little bit. It is a mystery here. There is, I don't have an answer to perfectly give this to you. Why did this happen? Did Jesus think Mark would need it to make the point that the disciples are like blind men who are healed but don't completely see yet? Maybe that was all his plan. I don't know. Did Mark pick up on it? Was there something else going on? Did this have to do with the guy's actual faith? Not sure. I don't know. But it's weird, right? And for that reason, I kind of like it. Uh, I, I find passages that stump me endearing. And they pull me back. I want more. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, they, he puts the spit on his eyes. That just seems very not polite in, in, in my, my lifetime, right? Uh, but it, it's Jesus' water that's going to bring healing with his word. Can you kind of see a little overtone there, right? Lays his hands on him. And the guy says, I see people. They look like trees walking. It's kind of a strange phrase. I, I think what it means is that, He's blind, so he doesn't know what people look like. He's maybe felt someone's face, right? Uh, he might have touched a tree. How much can you tell what a tree looks like by touching it? So he's, he's heard about trees. He's heard about people. Um, and so here he is seeing something for the first time, and he sees people. But he knows it's not right. It, it doesn't look like what it should look like. There's too much something, fuzziness. They look like big blobs of things. Only, well, that might be a big tree, I suppose, he's thinking in his head, right? But then it's walking around, it's moving, so it's got to be a person, right? And that's kind of his answer, which, again, doesn't really satisfy our, like, how did this happen, right? Why is it not perfectly healed? Um, uh, but it explains his statement a little bit. Um, but Jesus, Jesus has no problem with it. He's not even surprised. He's like, he's like what? It didn't work? He just... Lays his hands on him, heals him. And then the, the miracle is almost missed because of all the weirdness, right? No, no, really. He healed a blind man with his hands and his spit. That's how powerful and amazing and glorious and wonderful and truly God this guy is. You know, uncleanness and sickness and corruption flees from his touch. It's a beautiful thing. Um, verse 28, or excuse me, 26 you, you see more of this mark in secret. I haven't spent a lot of time talking about the mark in secret, but there it is. He says, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, go home. Um, but I want to move on and make sure we give time to the last six verses here. All right. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the second time we've had this question and this conversation because when John the Baptist was killed, Mark told us that Herod was having the same kind of conversation and some of the same answers were being given. But here they are given by the disciples about who the crowds think Jesus is. 
some say John the Baptist, right? People are saying John the Baptist rose from the dead and that's who Jesus is now. Um, others say Elijah. The entire intertestamental theology was waiting for Elijah to come again, whether he'd be born again or come down from heaven. He was going to come again and usher in the coming of the Christ. And so some think that Jesus is Elijah. I hope you know, you know, John the Baptist is the one who that is speaking about when the Old Testament says Elijah will come. Um, others say one of the prophets, right? So who are, who are people saying that Jesus is? All these crowds, all these people, who are they talking to the disciples about Jesus being? Well, not the Christ. Notice that, not the Christ. But Jesus does ask them, the disciples, verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are, you are the Christ. Who do you say that I am is, is maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible. I mentioned a moment ago the weirdest, but maybe the one of the most important ones. Uh, the reality of Jesus is that he's not neutral. He's not neutral. He's not just a good guy you can kind of like and he'll be over there. Uh, he is the reigning king of kings, lord of lords, god of war, lamb of God, uh, master of the universe. Everything is under his thumb to be dashed to pieces with the potter's, like a potter's vessel with an iron scepter. And yet he has bled and died for the lifeblood of every single man, woman, and child who has ever lived. Uh, uh, this, this Christ, this king, um, this one who Peter says he is, uh, demands then that not only does Peter or the church recognize him, uh, he asks that every single man, woman, and child be confronted with this reality and either believe it or choose to go to hell. And those, those are straight up the reality. You can believe the king is risen, that you're saved, that you're alive forevermore. It's going to make your life better and better starting now, from now into eternity, through faith alone in Christ. Or, or you can get as much as you can while you can, while you're here, until you die, and then it's payback time, and you'll get exactly what you deserve. Who do you say that he is? Yeah. That question is for everyone. And you're here tonight, not because you're the choir, although about half of you are, but you're, you're here tonight uh, because you are the ones who have answered that question. He is the Christ. And when you hear Peter say this, you say, he's the Christ. You agree. You like that, right? So good. Rejoice in that. That's what the text is here to make you say, make you feel. And likewise, you should also get a little ruffled when what happens uh, next happens. Uh, uh, verse 30 uh, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's the mark in secret again. But he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. So no parables, no stories, no illusions about leaven and bread to be confused. He started to say, you know, okay, you guys don't understand. Let me tell you. We're eventually going to get to Jerusalem. When we get there, someone's going to betray me. You won't be able to save me. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And again, he told this to them not once, not twice, but ongoing. We'll see it again in the text. He tells it to them plainly, and yet it, it doesn't get through. Whatever else they might believe about this man, whatever else they might believe about him as even being like unto God, they don't think he's God who's here 
to die. And, and Peter steps up and is the one to say it. Verse 32, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, the, the brass. Um, you know, I, I don't want to talk about jujitsu too much. I really do enjoy taking jujitsu lessons. And the guy who teaches is a black belt. He's been a black belt for a very long time. He's, to get a black belt is 15 years or so. Long time to get to that position. And I can't imagine being in his classroom and hearing him say something and going up, even if he's wrong, if I think he's wrong, going up and taking him aside to correct him in his space. It is madness to try to do that to someone who's your master. And that's, that's what Peter does here, right? And Jesus is, he's not exactly gentle. I don't know that he's rude either, but gentle's, what do you do with it, right? turning and seeing his disciples. He sees that they're watching. He knows they're hearing what Peter's saying. He has to correct Peter in some way. This is the primary teaching of the entire Bible. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's the primary teaching of the Bible. He's got to say that Peter's wrong. And he does so in a way that leaves very little doubt about the position with this get behind me Satan stuff. Uh, Satan I, it has kind of been mentioned in the book so far, unclean spirits, demons being cast out, binding of the strong man. Uh, Mark talks about demons more than anybody else in the New Testament that I can tell. It's almost disturbing, right? In fact, my, my family mentioned it. They're like, you know, demons have been in the sermons a lot recently. Maybe, maybe you should like tell people it's okay. <laughs> you know, God's on our side. And I, I hope I'm giving that across to you, that Jesus is the master of these things. Jesus is the master of these things, and he holds you in his hand. You don't need to fear these things. Uh, but when he says that a teaching is from Satan, you've got to believe the teaching is from Satan. So, so get behind me, Satan, isn't that Peter is the incarnate and possessed Baal's above, born into, into destruction. He's just saying what he says next. Um, uh, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yeah. Uh, that, that is satanic thought, that is satanic religion, that is Satan's goal, is to remove God's mind from creation. And so watch creation burn. Some people have the fallen illusion that the devil's trying to get control so he can rule. I think that's silly. Uh, he is just trying to burn it all down. Hell, in some ways, is what he wants, except he doesn't want hell, he wants annihilation. He wants to be gone. He wants it all gone. That's why hell is actually the punishment, if you think about it. Annihilation of all this stuff would let the devil win. He gets what he wants. Right? Instead, God's going to bind him in Christ by means of the suffering and the wounds, right? The blood atonement, the payments, the great exchange that he has for you. And so Jesus continues to teach. That's what he's going to do and emphasizes that the things of God are not always like the things of men. And so weakness can be strength. And what appears to be foolishness can be, in fact, very wise. Uh, it doesn't mean that the word of God is actually foolishness. It means that sometimes it exposes the foolishness of the world. Uh, that the word seems to say things that first you think, that's too crazy to believe. But then if you can think maybe, you know, the word of God is true. Maybe the crazy is on the other side. And you, you find there's reasonable answers to why the word says what it says. And so then you find out the thing you thought was so normal, that was the crazy. 
And indeed, since uh, you're in a battle against the world, you should really assume that the world speaks crazy and the Bible speaks sanity. And you should assume that. So work from that premise. Uh, that's why being in the Proverbs is so valuable. It gives you that foundation for discernment. So setting your mind on the things of God. Uh, let me ultimately emphasize to you, though, uh, that the things of God are, is the grace of God for you which is in Jesus Christ. And when I say grace, I mean his love, his charity, his compassion, his fidelity, his commitment, his loving kindness, his unyielding desire for you to be his in innocence and righteousness and blessedness so that he's put the whole thing on his shoulders, whole thing on his shoulders and sealed it with a pact that can never be broken since the grave indeed is open. Now for us, yeah. So as you walk through this third week in Lent, uh, let me exhort you, set your minds on such things. In the name of Jesus, amen.